our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Marshall McLuhan once said, A point of view can be a dangerous luxury when substituted for insight and understanding. Welcome to Christian Questions. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. You might say that ours is a long-term approach as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 19 years. I'm Jonathan, and that long-term different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 987th broadcast, and we've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years. That's right, and we figured it was time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting, so here we are. We thank you all for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, website messages, Facebook, or on our chat board. So let's get started. Jonathan, what's the question for today's podcast? Well, Rick, our question is, why didn't God make the Bible easy to understand part one? And our theme text is found in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. All right, so again, the question, why didn't God make the Bible easy to understand? And I noticed you said part one. So what that means is there's got to be a second part, which means is this must be a complicated book. So, <laughs> here. Let's do, the, let's do a test. Pick up a book or an article and start reading. If that book or article is well-written, it will bring you to some kind of conclusion, some kind of understanding or realization that you didn't have before. Now, these realizations can be across a wide scope of subjects and learning, but the bottom line is you picked up that well-written book or article and now you have some greater knowledge or insight. Now, pick up the Bible and start reading. It starts out all good and wonderful, and just six chapters later, it seems like God gets mad and pretty much scraps the whole creation thing. Why? Well, read further, and the confusion actually grows. So, what's up with this anyway? The Almighty God, the Creator of all things, surely could have written the Bible in such a way that it would be universally understood. Well, the fact is, he didn't. So the question is, why not? And actually, Jonathan, there is a really cool answer to this. So that's what we are here to talk about today. Why didn't God make the Bible easy to understand? And folks, with all of our subjects, it's always our objective to choose uh, to approach it in a biblical and very relevant and practical way. We search out the original context of the scriptures that we cite. We try to find their true meaning and combine those scriptures with the pressing issues of our day to give you something to really, really think about. And Jonathan, today's subject is something that requires an awful lot of thought, isn't it? Absolutely, Rick. It really is. And it's, a, it's an interesting question. How did you come up with it? 
Um, actually, this was suggested to me. <laughs> this was suggested me to me by one of our CQ contributors, and she said, "Look, you know, this is a, a question that is is on a lot of people's minds." And and as she sent me a bunch of notes and so forth, it's like, yeah, you know what? This is this is something that we really do need to talk about. So. Excellent. So, Jonathan, we're gonna we're gonna break this subject up into into little pieces, and each piece is gonna have three essential statements to sort of introduce it. And each statement is gonna start out the same way. So the first, so I'm gonna make the statement, Jonathan. And then you, I'm gonna ask you to fill in the, the the blank, if you will. So the first thing is, well, why the Bible is confusing? Well, it was written over about sixteen hundred years and by about 40 different people. And if you got a book written over all of those years, by all of those people, you got to think that there's going to be some kind of confusion somewhere. Okay? You would think, yeah. You would think. And that's what we've got. Okay? It is confusing. So why the Bible is confusing, you gave us some facts. What we feel like we want. What is it that we feel like we want from the Bible instead of confusion? Well, Rick, it's clarity of purpose and content from beginning to end. No style or in interpretive issues, just a straightforward summation of important events and teaching. See, that's what we feel like we want. Look, just give me clarity. Give me a beginning, a middle, and an end. Don't give me style and interpretation. Just, just tell me the way it is. Why God arranged it to be this way, this confusing way. This is a book that unfolded the past, as Moses reported in Genesis, reported the present as writers recorded Jewish and Christian history as it was happening, and prophesied the future as the many prophets wrote what would come to happen. This approach verifies the Bible's authenticity. Okay, so one of the things we have to realize about the Bible, Jonathan, it, it does, it unfolds what happened previously. You know, Moses wasn't there at creation, yet he wrote the story of creation. He wasn't That's there... Right. He wasn't there at the flood, but he wrote the story of the flood. He, he caught us up for history. And then you have many writers writing as things are happening. And then you have many prophecies that talk about things that are going to happen. So by definition, you've got all of these different things going on, and this book covers 1,600 years, but the prophecies cover thousands of years. By definition, it's going to be a lot of information that is not—God did not— need to put it into some clear, easy to read, you know, the Bible for dummies kind of a book. He didn't write it that way. <laughs> he, he wrote it because he was giving us history. He was giving us current events and he was giving us future. And this actually verifies the Bible's authenticity because it's not written in some clear cut, organized fashion. And we'll, and we'll develop that a little bit further. So let, let's pause here for a moment in, our, in the middle of our beginning of our uh, explanation, and let's go to a point of view that is completely, utterly opposite from ours. We're going to be going through each segment of the podcast today uh, to a, um, a YouTube video by the friendlyatheist.com, and his particular video that we're going to be uh, taking pieces of is 10 Reasons the Bible is Not a Well-Written Book. So here we're going to go through reasons one and two. 10 Reasons Why the Bible is Not a Well-Written Book by FriendlyAtheist.com. So how do we know the Bible is not a well-written book? It's not well-organized. 
The Bible is a huge mess. I mean, it's written in chronological order, not thematic order. And that might be okay if the Bible were a history book, but not so much when it's a guidebook for life. And that's especially a huge problem when Christians use the Bible to justify their beliefs and actions. They have to flip through the book all over the place to find passages that support their views. You want passages about love, marriage, homosexuality, abortion? You won't find them in one spot. There's not even a helpful index. And this forces Christians to quote verses out of context all the time. Okay, let, let, let's pause there for a minute, because his first reason is the Bible's not well organized. And he said, you know, it's, it's written in chronological order, but it's not a history book. But hang on. <laughs> <laughs> it is a history book. It is. As a matter of fact, those who, who, who attach themselves to the Jewish faith use the Bible, use the Old Testament as their history. So, you know, if you're going to say it's not well organized because it's written in chronological order and it shouldn't be, well, you know what? It's a history book, but it's much more than that as well. And his point seems to be that, well, it's this guidebook, so it should be organized differently. Ah, uh, son, you know, it's a, it's a history book that shows us guidance. And because of that, you do have to flip around back and forth. Okay, let's go to his second reason why the Bible is not a well-written book. Are no pictures. I know, not all books need pictures, but sometimes diagrams and charts can be very helpful. I mean, even Lord of the Rings came with a map. Where's the diagram of a family tree instead of a long list of begats? What about a timeline to help you keep track of what all the various characters are doing all the time? I'm just saying, it would be helpful. Okay, so no pictures or diagrams. But, you know, the interesting thing about the Bible, Jonathan, is it gives some very specific detailed instructions for building things, like the tabernacle, like the ark, like the temple. And if you pay attention, you can actually draw out from those instructions what those things may have looked like. Good point. And also, Jesus spoke in parables, and we can see picture language in the way he talks, so we can actually visualize. Yeah, um, many things in the Bible. Yeah, word pictures. Good, good. Very good. Very good. Okay, so let's get back to our three questions. So, Jonathan, why the Bible is confusing, what's the next point on that? Well, Rick, it seems impossible to follow along with the time it takes for things to happen and the way that they happen to be able to see God's will. So it's like it's impossible. It's just too many details and you get lost in it. So as a result of that confusion, what we feel like we want from the Bible is... To know what God's will is and when and how it is to happen. Why can't he just tell us, Jonathan, this is my will. I mean, that's what we feel like. I would love that. (laughs) Right. That's what we feel like we want to happen. Well, why did God not arrange it that way, but arrange it the way it is? His plan and his timing of it is comprehensive, eternal, and precise. The foggy view of his timing that we have verifies his power and foresight. So the very fact that we can't understand it and it comes to pass anyway verifies the power of God and the smallness of ourselves. And I think we, we, we have to just see it that way and say, wow, there's something really special about this particular book. Let, let's do, give an example of this from, from prophecy, a somewhat obscure prophecy of a very specific event, timing 
and time are really important in this particular prophecy. We're going to go to Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So now, for those of us who recognize the scriptures, we recognize that this is a prophecy of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Uh, and this is, this is shortly before his crucifixion. This is where you have the celebration of Palm Sunday throughout the Christian world. This is what it's celebrating. And that Zechariah prophecy was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus actually rode in to the city. Now, Jesus unmistakably fulfilled this prophecy exactly on time and showed us the way he fulfilled it, that it had to come to pass when he did what he did. And he says something really weird when he is challenged on this. So now let's go to the fulfillment of the prophecy in Luke 19, 37 through 40. The whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So it's interesting, Jonathan, because the people are making such a loud noise in, in their joy of Jesus riding in, and they are recognizing him and, and lauding him, uh, as, you know, Hosanna, save us now, and all of that. And the Pharisees are saying, look, keep your people quiet, will you? And Jesus' response is, I can't, because the prophecy said that they would shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. And if they weren't shouting, the very stones would cry out. Now, that's a weird thing to say, but he's telling us that God said it would happen this way, and there's nothing I can do to change it. And I think that is a powerful way to look at how the scriptures are showing us the, the great power of the prophecies that God put in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New Testament. Absolutely. So time and timing are precise and important features in the revealing of God's plan. Okay, let's look at time and timing with just a couple of scriptures before we wrap up this first segment. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. All right, there's several things in that verse, Jonathan, that are important. First of all, the Lord's not slow about his promise. Well, sure seems like that, doesn't it? Well, if we only have a lifespan of about 80 or 90 years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're right, you're right. From our perspective, it's going way too slowly. But then the rest of that verse says, but look, God doesn't want any to perish, but he wants all to come to repentance. So if he's not slow about his promise, in other words, his promise is going to be right on time, and that's what he wants, then you say, well, look, what he wants is pretty magnificent. Isn't it worth waiting for, even if we think it's taking too long? Absolutely. It is worth waiting for. All right. So next verse, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. This, again, time and timing as important features in revealing of God's plan. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Okay, so God here is giving is, is giving sort of a lecture through Ezekiel to Israel. And he's saying, look, I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I take pleasure in when the wicked turn from his evil way and live. In other words, when the wicked turn from darkness to light. Now, the previous verse says that God wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. Turn from darkness to light. Here's another verse that says, that's what God looks forward to. Turn back, he's saying to Israel. Turn back. You don't want to be in that, in that darkness. You want to be in the light of God's word and God's will. And you look at these things and say, okay, that, those are the things that God wants. Well, when? When does he want them? Because it, does it look like those are happening right now? No, it doesn't. Not even remotely close. So you, you got to look at this and say, okay, something seems to be a little bit wrong with this, you know, from our perspective. I mean, the Bible was written a long, long time ago. I mean, the book of Revelation was written about 2,000 years ago, okay? That was the last book of the Bible, and it's 2,000 years ago. And then for the previous 1,600 years, the Bible was being written. How come... We, we're talking about God is precise with time and timing. How come it's taking so, so long? See, here's the thing, Jonathan, as we begin to wrap this up. So when we do see evidence of God's love for the sinners of the world, when are we going to see it coming into focus? Okay, we, we're seeing evidence that, okay, he loves them, but when do we see it coming into focus? God is love, and he does love every human being who ever lived. I absolutely agree, but... If God does, in fact, love sinners so much, he sure seems to be losing the conversion battle. Is he losing? If you disagree with some of Rick and Jonathan's viewpoints, no matter your beliefs, we want to hear from you. Reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com or through our app by searching for Christian Questions in your app store. Our producers are feeding us your awesome comments and questions every week, so keep them coming. In this next CQ chapter, we're going 3D. Three viewpoints. One of the great challenges we have in understanding God's plan is the limited perspective that we can view it from. Think about it. Here we are living in this age of technology where everything comes to us at the push of a button in a lightning fast manner. And here God is seemingly slogging along through thousands of years to get his plan to work. Jonathan, we really need to rethink this because what seems to be and what are are often two very different things. Be- Absolutely. Now, before, before we move a little bit uh, forward here, let's go to a quote from somebody who really not only doesn't agree with us, but <laughs> really <laughs> speaks out against those uh, people like us. Richard Dawkins. Here's an interesting quote from Mr. Dawkins. I am against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. And, you know, I, I just have to take, take issue with that because, Jonathan, you know and I know that one of the reasons we do this podcast and we've done this, this broadcasting for 19 years is because we want to understand the world and we want to see it through the eyes of God to get a better understanding of not only the, what the world was and what is, but what the world will be according to God's will. So I think Mr. Dawkins just doesn't understand things the way we see them. And hey, that's his prerogative, that's for sure. Um, that's right. Okay, let's go back to FriendlyAtheist.com. And, and I want to say, Jonathan, you know, this, this young man is going to be saying a lot of things that we vehemently disagree with. 
But you know, I got to tell you, I really enjoy and appreciate the attitude with which he says it. He's not, he doesn't, you know, there's not a lot of snide remarks. There's not that condescension like, man, you guys are really idiots here. He's just saying it and, and, and you can see that he's got passion for his own belief system. So he's going to go now with reasons three and four of what he says are 10 reasons the Bible is not a well-written book. It's not very specific. When it comes to things you're not supposed to do, the list is scattered everywhere. A more helpful book would just include a checklist of things you're supposed to do and things you're not supposed to do. And maybe that list would include page numbers, just in case you want to go to the actual document for reference. And, you know, maybe a sidebar to let you know when killing other people in the name of your faith is okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so he's saying it's not very specific. Again, I beg to differ. When you look, he's looking for again a, a book that is just clearly set up as a how-to book. The Bible is not set up that way. It's set up as history. It's set up as prophecy. It's set up as guidance in all of those things. And one of the beauties of history, and tell me if this isn't true, if you are trying to figure out how people think. You're going to have to bounce through history and go back to the great people of this era and that era and that era and say, okay, I can learn from them in this way. I can learn from this one in that way. I can learn from this one not what not to do, and I can learn from that one what to do. And you've just covered, you know, a thousand years of history. So the Bible is specific in a very, very different kind of way. Um, let, let's get to his fourth reason. Helpful. It's not easy to understand. We shouldn't need theologians and pastors to explain all of this material to us if God felt it was that important. It's not like they're doing a good job of it anyway, since all these different Christian pastors interpret the book in so many different ways. I mean, you show me a hundred Christians, I'll show you a hundred different Christianities. If all these people think God is saying very different things, that's partially his fault as a communicator. I mean, he should have been more explicit in terms of saying what he wants from us. Okay, so now he's saying God is at fault as a communicator. And again, we're gonna, we see that entirely differently because God is not at fault as a communicator. God has a very specific reason for doing things the way he does because he's such a great communicator. And that is what we're going to try to unfold here. So, Jonathan, again, let's go back to those three statements. First of all, so another reason why the Bible is confusing. Well, the Bible does not plainly reveal God's plan and who benefits from it. Instead, it seems to tell a lot of failure stories and reminds us of God's wrath. Okay, it tells you about all kinds of things going wrong, and you know, it seems like God is always getting mad and all that. That's the way a lot of people look at the Bible. So what do we feel like we want from the Bible instead of that? Just tell us the details. Are we in? Are we out? Does what I believe matter or not? Again, that's what we want. That's what this young man is saying. Why don't you just give us the checklist already? Make it simple for us to get. And there's a reason why God didn't. So why God arranged the book to be this way is? God's plan does include the conversion of the world, but first it requires that the human race be left to their own devices to plainly learn how they would fare without God. All right. So here's the thing, and this is where we start to get into the matter in a deep way. Jonathan, you had a, a comment here, I think. Yeah, um, Rick, um, my comment would be, man without God is pretty pitiful. <laughs> yeah. That, that's my first comment. But um, my other thought was, 
how many different ways of governing has God permitted uh, humankind to try <laughs> and fail over and over and over again with every different type of government? Um, and selfishness, greed, power, and wealth seem to be the culprits which make them all fail. All right. So you're right. You know, when you look at history, you can look at it from the standpoint of God's lack or our lack. Jonathan, uh, it looks like we have a call. Hang on one second. Uh, good evening and welcome to Christian Questions. Who are we speaking with? Good evening. This is Julius. Hey, it's Julius. <laughs> How are you, brother? Oh, so nice to uh, be back with you. Yeah, and folks, for those of you, who, for those of you who don't know, folks, Julius has been a longtime contributor to Christian Questions and has called us back in our radio days. Would constantly call us with with scriptures and input. Very, very valuable, and we're glad to have you back here today, Julius. What have you got for us? Thank you so much. If I may uh, uh, send greetings to my friends in Australia that listen to you, you know those dear folks. Uh, I have friends in Australia mm-hmm. that listen to you. Greetings to them, okay? All right. Now, uh, number uh, two, uh, uh, I, get, I have some scriptures here I'd like to share with you briefly. Now, uh, uh, if you and I were to play Password right this minute, I, I, you've seen the word, uh, the game Password, haven't you? Yeah, you're dating yourself, brother, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you give me a clue, and I give you... A, and I give you, like, you give me a synonym, I give you the word. Like, if, if you were to say, Julius, what's, uh, what's another word for Bible? I would say God. Mm-hmm. And then I would add creator, author. But anyway, going to the, uh, to the key question here, why is the Bible uh, difficult to understand? The basic answer, I think, uh, our Heavenly Father gives it himself. You know, he, has, he asks, answers all the questions. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Secret things belong to God, but things revealed belong to us. Okay? Jeremiah 29, 13. I think I picked up the scripture from, <laughs> from you originally, from your program. Jeremiah 29, 13. What a, what a beautiful text. And he says, And you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And we answer, yes, Father. We want to know your secrets. Teach us how to operate your GPS. (laughs) Truly, Father, we find you beyond the printed page. And I would say that means that uh, we need prayer. We need more than paper. We need more than the printed page to find our God. We need prayer is a key in our relationship with him. And how true and meaningful that we cannot live by bread alone, but also we're saying to our Father, we need your precepts, your guidance. Mm -hmm. Time is the key factor in understanding our God. And I think you're pretty much touching on that already. You You always have. I like a chart of the ages, uh, uh, made up by uh, the late Charles Taze Russell. Mm-hmm. He has a chart of the ages about, you know, God's time features. And uh, another scripture uh, is, uh, you know, our apostles. 
they sought diligently to know God's times and seasons. And in Acts 1 7, our Lord Jesus told them before he left them, it's not for you to know. Mm-hmm. See, see how we go to some things that they're not revealed. They're not, it wasn't time. Remember the famous scripture in Daniel, the prophet Daniel, chapter 12, verse 9. Uh, he was instructed to seal the book. It's not for you to know now. This, uh, Daniel, this is something that will be made known in the future. And uh, so many other aspects to God's reasoning with the uh, re- revealing himself to us. Uh, and, of course, the, the main key, brother, uh, you know, the main key is our Lord Jesus. And if you recall Hebrews, I, I've heard you quote Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, 2, and 3, and verse 2 in particular. How God, today he speaks to us, he reveals himself through our Lord Jesus. That's so clear in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. And... Uh, a concluding thought on uh, this mysterious book. Look, brother, you know how many people have tried to destroy the Bible? Yeah, over ages, many, many. But it's all over the, over the centuries. But they could, they, you know, it's God's word. We cannot destroy. It's it's like trying to destroy God. It just doesn't happen. That's His word. It it, uh, it perpetuates. One final thought. All right, we need to wrap this up, the, brother. Pardon? I said we need to wrap this up. Yeah, yeah, one final thought. Uh, the lovely lady, she was reading uh, a book. And by the time she got through reading the book, she fell in love with the author. <laughs> Thank you and God bless. Julius, thanks so much. We appreciate it so much. Take care. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, uh, Jonathan, a lot of very good thoughts, as usual, from Julius, many scriptures. And, you know, he brought out a theme about time, and, you know, it's not time, and it's not time, and it's not time. So, well, why isn't it ever, isn't it ever time? And I think that's, that's a good point to jump off from, from what Julius said. And, and that brings us to a very important point. Our first point that we want to make about why the Bible is so difficult to understand. We've been asking a lot of questions and sort of laying groundwork, but it's really simple. We do not believe the Lord has been trying to convert the world for the past 2,000 years since Jesus came. Why don't we believe that he's been trying to convert the world? Because the world's not converted yet. So let's go back to some of the context of our theme scripture. Remember, Jonathan, that theme scripture was about, you know, God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways aren't our ways and he's higher than us and so forth. Let's go back to the context of that, Isaiah 55, verses 9 through 11. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire." and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So God is saying unequivocally through Isaiah that if his word uh, is meant to convert the world, it's going to happen. It's going to be done. So, And we're saying, well, why isn't the world converted yet? And our answer is because God doesn't want it to be. And, you know, people looking at that can have a field day with that. Like, oh, yeah, there's a great cop-out answer for you. It didn't happen because you're saying God didn't want it to happen. Like, you know, come on, 
grow up. Well, <laughs> let's grow through this, okay? And in, in, in the process, let's all grow up together. Because people who look at that say it's a simple reason, a reason of convenience. Well, so let's examine a few other scriptures that actually prove the point that God is not trying to convert the world right here, right now. And that brings us to our second point, that if the first point was, if he wanted to convert the world in the last 2,000 years, it would have been done. The second point is, we don't believe that God has been trying to convert the world for the past 2,000 years because the Bible tells us he's not. And that can be shocking to a lot of people, Christians included. How do we get there? Well, Jesus explains that there's, there's presently a double standard in place regarding understanding. And Jonathan, when you think about double standard and God, it doesn't sound right, does it? It doesn't sound fair. No, it doesn't. It sounds like, wait a minute, wait, 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 he's going to judge people differently? And the answer is, yep, he absolutely is. <laughs> How do we know that? Again, let's go to the words of Jesus, Matthew 13, 10 through 16. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Okay, so Jesus starts out, and he's talking about a double standard. He says, for whoever has, more is going to be given, and whoever doesn't have, things are going to be taken away. There's a double standard there going on. Jesus next explains the reason for that double standard. And the reason, he's going to actually be quoting another prophecy from Isaiah. He's going to be quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. So let's go on with Matthew 13, verses 13 through 16, which is, most of it is quoting Isaiah. Therefore I speak to them in parables. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not proceed, for the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. So, Jonathan, what, he, what, what, what the prophecy in Isaiah is saying is that the uh, the... the the words of Jesus, for the most part, are going to fall upon deaf ears. And Jesus is saying, I realize that, and I'm not trying to change that. And you think, well, wait a minute, that's kind of weird. Why would God send Jesus to talk to people in a way that they couldn't understand? And he says, look, I speak in parables to make it even harder for them. Double standard. Some are meant to understand, and others are not. And you think, wait a minute, that's not a God of love. And the answer is, oh, yes, it is. But you have to see the rest of the story unfold before you. So, look, we can be, begin to see the logic of God's plan. Okay? Um, his timing is impeccable. His word accomplishes what it was sent to do when it's supposed to be done. And he works in systematic stages. And see, this is the thing. God, his timing is perfect. And it includes everything it needs to when and how it needs to include those things. So again, as we wrap up this segment, some could easily interpret our reasoning as an excuse for God not acting. I can see how they would do that. So, 
when do we find out about the stage where God pays attention to those who seem to be left out? Before we turn the page, we wanted to tell you about CQ Rewind. It's a free weekly service provided by our great team of contributors who help the guys prepare for each episode. It's an in-depth look at their research, scripture, and much more, showing you the map of Rick and Jonathan's content journey. Now let's continue finding out the better answers as we ask the better questions. Again, Jonathan, we need to be aware of our puny perspective regarding the enormous and eternal plan of God. To us, things may seem unfair, and it may seem as though God has even lost interest, but neither of those things is true. The fairness of God can only be understood in the context of the comprehensiveness of God that has yet to be uncovered. So in other words, we haven't given enough of the planning process of God for us to make a, a fair judgment on whether things are fair or not, because our perspective, like you said before, is too puny, it's too small, it's too short, it's too limited. So let's begin to put the rest of those pieces in place. Another quote, this one, this is a, uh, this one I like. This is from W. Clement Stone. Truth will always be truth, regardless of lack of understanding, disbelief, or ignorance. All right. Doesn't matter what people think about the scriptures. It doesn't matter what people think about God, because that doesn't change who and what God truly, really, really is. So our challenge here is to try and present the character of God through the writings that were inspired by God for the purpose of giving us the understanding of his plan in a very difficult and, and, and trying sort of way. And, and Jonathan, you say, well, again, how come God just didn't make it plain? If he could have just sent a telegram to everybody and they all receive it exactly at the same time and open it and they read it in their own language because God can do that, it would be so much easier. But no, God... <laughs> It would, but he has a greater reason and a greater purpose. Right. And, and see, that's the thing we have to always remember. There's a bigger reason. There's a bigger purpose. Hang on. Let's see if we can put that in perspective. And here's the thing. With our little perspective should come a very large dose of humility. After all, we're trying to understand an eternal plan by the eternal God, and he's actually, he's actually letting some individuals understand it grasp it and be able to see it a little bit. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 is a great scripture for that sense of humility that we should really be having. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the base God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And Jonathan, I, I think we should just pause there for, and, and just, just talk on that scripture for a moment, because the idea is, if you give this incredible knowledge of the eternal plan of God to those who have the great egos of this world, what are they going to do with it? Nothing good. <laughs> <laughs> Probably sell it. Probably put themselves in a position to be able to be lauded by many. And, you know, we see that unfortunate 
thing happening within, you know, the, the general Christianity today as it is. You know, those who, who, who reap millions to their personal lives from the gospel or from their preaching of the gospel or from their preaching of their interpretation of the gospel, which is not really the gospel at all, I should say. The point is there's no humility there. God has chosen the base things of this world so that you don't get all puffed up and all about yourself and thinking you're so smart. So that, that's another important perspective in terms of trying to understand how do we do this? How do we understand the will and plan of God? Let, let's go back to our friendly atheist from friendlyatheist.com, his 10 reasons the Bible is not a well-written book. And we're going to go through reasons, his reasons, number five and six, both of which I can safely say we absolutely positively do not agree with. Let's listen. It's not consistent. There are so many contradictions throughout the Bible, and it's not like they're hard to spot. I mean, even Genesis 1 and 2 have difficulties reconciling with each other. And the Gospels have contradicting accounts of the details of Jesus' life. But instead of fixing the Bible, where it's clearly wrong and clearly contradictory, people just keep replicating it. God doesn't need a copy machine. He needs an editor. Okay, Jonathan. He says it's not consistent. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, and he says, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 have, have trouble reconciling themselves to each other. No, one of them is a summation of the other. It's really simple. You know, and, and, and you know, he's going through and he says, you know, the, the Gospels contradict each other. No, the Gospels really don't contradict each other. They tell the story from different perspectives. See, when you're going through history and you're understanding how God works, his plan works in stages. And the inconsistency that we see is actually the, the development of several different stages. Some things apply to some stages and don't apply to others. That looks inconsistent until you back away and see that these are steps moving you further in the plan of God. And then it's like, oh, okay, that makes more sense. All right, let's go back to his next reason that he says the Bible is not a well-written book. Doesn't make any clear predictions. The Bible makes these vague prophecies like the Messiah will come soon or we're going to have a war. But there are no specific predictions that you would need some sort of insider knowledge to figure out. There's a lot of reverse engineering going on to make sure that our modern realities retroactively fit what the Bible supposedly said. There are people who think the end of the world is coming soon because of biblical clues. Maybe if the Bible predicted a natural disaster with, you know, dates and locations and the number of victims, then skeptics like myself would have to take that book a little more seriously. God has the same psychic abilities as Nostradamus. You can read into it whatever you want, but the prophecies are vague enough that they will eventually be fulfilled by someone if you're willing to look hard enough. That's just not impressive. Okay. <laughs> All right. You know, he says no clear predictions. And, you know, one of the things that a, a young man like that ought to be, be given to do as homework is look at the, I don't know, and I've never counted, the number of prophecies about Jesus and his first advent and the things that he did and when he would do them and all of that. It's startling, the detail. Where he was born was detailed. How he would die was detailed. How he would teach was detailed. All of these things were details that were, 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 were given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. What about the regathering of Israel as a nation? 
That is a detailed, clear, concise prophecy that, incidentally, how many nations have returned to their homeland after being scattered throughout the world for generations and generations and generations? How many? Right. Except (laughs) except for Israel. Israel. And that was specifically, clearly prophesied. So don't tell me that it's not specific. You just you just not you're getting your information from those who are ignorant of the specificity of what the scriptures actually say. So again, Jonathan, let's go back to our, our points. Why the Bible is confusing. God works in stages, long drawn out stages with long drawn out purposes. Okay. Stages long and drawn out, long beyond our lifetimes. And so it's confusing because we're seeing one little tiny tidbit of these stages. What do we feel like we want the Bible to do uh, in, in relation to that? Well, Rick, we impatiently want it all to be equal, understandable, and applicable now. Right. We want everything to be applicable to everybody right now, equally, so nobody's feelings are hurt, and so everybody can be happy. And it's not going to happen that way. Because eternity, Jonathan, is much bigger and much more powerful and much more, more, more um, profound than how I feel about things. God's not worried about how I feel about things. He is concerned about giving me opportunity for salvation forever. So why did God arrange for this long, drawn-out approach? Well, eternity is forever, and God's plan comes with an eternity guarantee that promises the righteousness that comes from it will never fail. Let the artist finish his masterpiece. Okay, got to let him finish his work. I mean, God has got a work that he's been put in place, and it's been 6,000 years of this work. And so you got to say, well, what's the work? Where is it? How do we know it's happening? And, and so time for another one of our, our, our proclaiming of why we believe that God is not uh, looking to convert the world right now. We believe the Lord's not trying to convert the world right now and for the past 2,000 years because the Bible points to an age still future for this purpose. Now, this is an important point, and we obviously need to back it up with Scripture. But what we're saying is the world conversion, not now, but later. Why do we say that? Because the Bible tells us that. How do we know? Well, let's go back to some of the scriptures that we've been referencing uh, already in this podcast. Back to a broader look at the context of the Isaiah text we just talked about. And remember, Jonathan, in the last segment, Jesus was quoting Isaiah, right? That's right. Seeing you can see and can't hear and understand lest you be converted and so forth and so on. So the first portion of that Isaiah prophecy is what we would typically quote, and that's what Jesus himself quoted and answered Okay, so, so let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. Let's go to verses eight, uh, 8 through 10 to, to begin with. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Oh, okay. So, so you've got, sorry, I'm looking around, you know, enjoying the atmosphere. And all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, prophetically, you look at that, and Isaiah is answering God. He's answering God's call to, to, to preach to the people. But prophetically, that is a view of Jesus. He answered the call. Whom will I send? And Jesus said, here am I, send me. How do we know it's prophetic of Jesus? Because Jesus quotes the very words of the prophecy that come next that God instructs Isaiah to say. 
So we know it applied to Jesus because he's giving those words as his own reason for doing things the way he did. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. See, now Jesus quoted that, and we read that last segment, and then he stopped. He didn't read any more of the prophecy. He said, this is why I teach in parables, because I'm fulfilling the, the instruction given to me through the prophet Isaiah. So he's saying, I'm teaching so they cannot understand. So, Jonathan, we've been harping on God's timing throughout this whole podcast, right? Yes, absolutely. So what about God's timing? We've been saying, okay, but it's not time, it's not time, it's not time, it's not time. Well, when is it time, and how do you know? Well, folks, all you got to do is read the next verse of the prophecy, and it begins to explain all of that to you. So now, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 11, and this is the verse, Jonathan, nobody ever reads. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. So when you read that, Jonathan, what does that sound like? A great time of trouble. (laughs) And Jesus in Matthew 24 described a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. So you say, okay, God is not trying to convert the world now. How do we know? Well, the Bible told us in Isaiah and in in, in the words of Jesus himself that it's not the time. Well, when is the time going to be? Well, Isaiah actually finishes it by saying, because Isaiah asks asks God, how long? How how long do do we keep them in the dark, essentially? And he said, until, let me give a paraphrase, until this time of trouble where everything has fallen apart. So here's what's happening. God's plan allows the masses to be in ignorance until that ignorance brings extreme hardship. And you think, well, that doesn't sound like a fun plan, does it? No, it doesn't. It's scary, Rick. It's scary. And you, you look at it and say, well, how come they have to go that far? And we'll unfold that as, as we go, because there's a very significant, very important, very eternal reason for that. So God's plan allows this extreme hardship. Let's go to another, another prophecy to describe the extreme hardship in another way. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And we, we, we have quoted this, this, this particular prophecy, Jonathan, many, many, many times in our podcast because it's such an important prophecy and it, and it condenses into a few words a lot of the thinking of how God's plan unfolds. Zephaniah 3, let's start with verse 8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Doesn't that sound similar to the houses without people in the land being utterly desolate? It really does, Rick. It sounds identical. So you've got this sense of great, great trouble. And again, oftentimes we read that prophecy and you stop and you almost freeze like, oh man, God's plan is full of wrath and full of anger. Well, finish the prophecy though. 
Don't forget the next verse because there's something that comes later. And what is that? Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. For then I will give to the peoples purified lips. Then all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. So you know that the earth, you know, it said so the, all the earth will be devoured. And a lot of folks who try to interpret Bible prophecy say that, well, see, the world's going to be burned up. What are you going to do? The problem with that, Jonathan, is the next verse can't be true if the earth is burned up. So obviously the earth won't be burned up. Obviously. So why does it say the earth will be burned up? Because there's symbolism in prophecy, subject for a, a different podcast. But the earth, the, 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 the order of things, the social order, the, the earthly order of things is going to be destroyed. That's really what that's saying. And so now it says, Then I will give the people who are still there purified lips, that they would, may call upon the name of God and serve him Shoulder to shoulder, that gives you a sense of being together, working through something, working for a greater end. I mean, it gives you this sense of incredible camaraderie all behind the will of God. So, on the other end of all this deep, dark, destructive, and scary trouble is this beautiful, beautiful promise of purified lips and serving God shoulder to shoulder. So, again, as we begin to wrap this segment up, great trouble everywhere is listed as one of the things that is to precede the great blessing and worldwide conversion. So now we are beginning to chip away at the mystery of the future and of conversion. Good start, but it's only the beginning. Prophesying points to a future age of conversion. But what if we're misunderstanding prophecy? Sometimes our questions and commentary can get complicated. That's part of having a thorough discussion. We'd love to hear your opinion. Contact us now at ChristianQuestions.com. Comment through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our app. Just when you thought we may be figuring this out, let's get more complicated. And Jonathan, that was a good question. But what if we are misunderstanding prophecy? It's always important to realize that prophecy can and often is misunderstood. Having said that, we need to look for other clues that will help our understanding of prophecy either ring truer or be proven potentially faulty. Fortunately, we have several other scriptural statements that will help us along these lines. But Jonathan, here's the key. Are we honest enough to, as we look for other clues that help our understanding, are we honest enough to have our, our, our view of prophecy perhaps be proven potentially faulty because the other clues don't support what we have thought and what we would like for them to say. Yeah. Well, that would, that would be the right thing to do, but, uh, is to say, whoops, I must have interpreted it wrong because there's no um, proof or any uh, valid points everywhere else on that, on that matter. Yeah, and you know, and, and just a, a quick little side point, and I don't want to make a big issue of this, but there is a, and I, I didn't look at the details, I read it several weeks ago and I sort of forgot about it, but today was supposed to be the end of the world, according to one Christian group. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. Well, actually, I heard the 23rd uh, today is, was the day. Oh, the 23rd. Okay, so I'm a few the days 23rd. ahead. 23rd. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. But you know, it's not. 
<laughs> okay, it's not. Now, you know, you can you can wait till the 23rd and see who's right if you'd like. But, you know, I don't believe that God gives us a day where we can determine the world is going to end. I think he gives us a sense of how prophecy unfolds. And none of us, Jonathan, you know, when we, whenever we have David Stein, our friend David, uh, on the podcast with us, he's always saying that we are not prophets, but we are students of prophecy. Yes. And the whole point of being a student is you're always learning. And let us not forget that as we look at Bible prophecies. A great quote um, from Guy Finley in terms of gaining better understanding. The limit of your present understanding is not the limit of your possibilities. That is so important when we look at the Scriptures. Because, look, Jonathan, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to be an old guy, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am 59 years old, and I have been studying the Bible very, very, uh, with, with a lot of energy, let's say, since I was about 16. And there's still so much I just don't know. And so much that every day when I read, it's like, wow, where did that come from? I never remember that. So it's a matter of just being willing to not let our present understanding limit the possibilities of the power of God. And that's what we often do. Our puny little minds don't allow us to see things in a bigger way. Speaking of that puny thinking in relation to God, let's go back to the 10 reasons the Bible is not a well-written book, according to uh, FriendlyAtheist.com. And again, I want to mention, you know, this is a guy I would love to sit and talk with because he's got a great attitude. You know, he's very, very passionate about his perspective. I can respect that. Very disagreeable <laughs> to where we stand. I can still respect that. But he sounds like a guy you could talk to. And uh, who knows, maybe someday we will. But here's reasons number seven and eight that he claims the Bible is not a well-written book. It lacks knowledge that humans of the time could not have had. The Bible is only as scientifically accurate as the people of the time. Isn't that a coincidence? It says nothing about modern astronomy or mathematics or medicine. There are no passages about light bulbs or vaccines or the sun being a star with the earth revolving around it. And there's no mention of the United States. It's exactly the sort of book that you would expect people of that time to have written. In other words, it's just not that special. Okay, time out. <laughs> you know, it, he says it lacks knowledge beyond its time. And Jonathan, we could do two or three podcasts on refuting that particular statement. Because oh, absolutely. the Bible has science in it that is breathtaking in terms of its knowledge. It does talk about the, the, the earth revolving. It talks about the earth being round. It talks about the sun moving in orbit within the galaxy. And how about modern astronomy in Job 38:31, uh, who can loosen the cords of Orion? You know, the belt of Orion? Yep. Um, those three stars are moving apart where it will no longer be a straight line and look like a belt anymore. And, and finally, science has realized, guess what? It's moving apart. And, I mean, that was written to Job. Yeah, yeah, and then there's the scriptures about the currents in the ocean that nobody could have possibly known about, but it tells us that they're there. Uh, there's the scriptures about the importance of cleanliness and washing with water that in ancient times nobody knew. Uh, it, it, there, there's the scriptures that, that give you a sense of, of, of the smallness of the earth in relation to, to the bigness of the universe. There's the scriptures that talk about the universe ever expanding. And that's something that just recently science, scientists have, have discovered. And it's like, hey, we've discovered that the universe is expanding. Newsflash, that was written thousands of years ago in the scriptures. 
Okay. And that's modern day <laughs> astronomy. Yes, yes. So, no, there's much more to it than he even begins to understand. Let's go to his eighth reason. Characters make no sense. If you read really great books, the main characters are very complex. You know, the, the heroes often have flaws, and the bad guys sometimes have good intentions. In that sense, the Bible doesn't even bother with complex characters. God is always good no matter what. Even when he kills people with reckless abandon, it's for the greater good. Jesus is supposed to be without sin. And the redemption stories aren't really even that inspirational. Isaac, who did nothing wrong, is almost a victim of slaughter at the hands of his father. Job suffers and suffers for the crime of being faithful to God. It really makes you wonder who you should be rooting for. You know, character complexity. Look at the life of Job. He even mentioned it. There is a complex character. Last week, Jonathan, we were talking about dealing with temptation, and we talked about King David, remember? Oh, yeah. Talk about a complex character. He's talking about God. Well, God is always right. Well, you know what? He's right. God is always right. And God is above us. Jesus is perfect. Well, he's right. Jesus is perfect. And what he's not getting is that to understand them in the context of what the book tells us gives you a complexity that is breathtaking. And again, it comes from study, not judgment. You know, so many of us look at the, at the book and we judge it because we truly don't understand it. And we don't take the time to dig in and try to find out what it really says. So again, let's go to, back to our three statements. So another statement, why the Bible is confusing. Prophecy can be whatever we want it to be, and other biblical teaching can be twisted as well. Who knows how to really interpret this book? And there's a point to that. You know, you look at that, and you look at all the different Christian denominations and all the different interpretations, you say, look, who really knows? And you can interpret this thing any way you want to, okay? So, you know, where are you going with this? So, based on that confusing, that confusing environment, what is it that we feel like we want instead of that confusion? Well, Rick, just speak in easy language and give me plain, simple, and clear teaching. And that's what our friend, the friendly atheist, is asking for. He's saying, look, just say it the way it is. And, I, you know, I've talked to many atheists over many years, and th that is one of the big arguments. Look, if God is God, why doesn't he just appear before me and say, hi, I'm God, you believe now? Then the, the, the person says, yeah, well, then, then I'd believe. But again, if God is not trying to convert the world right now, why would he do that? It wouldn't make any sense. And, you know, so, so what you're doing is you're saying, I want God to reveal himself to me the way I want him to. Who ends up being God in that scenario? You know, we end, up, we end up putting ourselves in a position where we become the God telling God what to do. So the, the book is confusing. You know, prophecy and, and, and timing and scripture can be twisted. Why did God arrange it to be this way? Because the unfolding and revealing of God's plan is in a timed, sequential step, the understanding of his plan must work the same way. All will have their turn. And that's the key. It's sequential, it takes steps, except the steps are, are big steps that we are too small to be able to realize it's a big step. And everybody is going to have their turn, their ability to understand all of this. 
Jonathan, we've gone over a lot of material here and a lot of details. What about CQ Rewind in terms of uh, putting things in order for folks? Well, that's a, a good point, Rick. Uh, CQ Rewind at ChristianQuestions.com is uh, essential for a Bible study. It's going to list all these points out, and obviously you want the one that says why God arranged it to be this way. That's one you really want to think about, not the other two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, Go to uh, ChristianQuestions.com, hit the newsletter sign-up tab, and it's a free um, service. We'll email it to you, and you have have it right in front of you on paper, and you can listen to the program at the same time and get a double blessing. All right, and again, it's 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 emailed out as a PDF file. If you don't like the service, you can click on subscribe, and nobody will ever bother you again. But give it a try. Put the put the verses in front of you. Put the reasoning in front of you. And then when you ask the question, why didn't God make the Bible easy to understand? We can now see, and this is complicated. You know, there's there's a lot to this, and that's why we're taking two podcasts to to talk about it. There's a lot of details, but when you put them together, it's a beautiful, inspiring thought-out, incredible story of redemption that will be for eternity. So our next statement along the lines of this age, we understand this age is not for the conversion of the world. We've been saying that over and over again. And another reason, because many of the statements made by our Lord Jesus and his inspired apostles, they told us now was not the time. And you think about that and say, well, wait, wait, wait. Didn't they go and try to convert people? Yes, they did. But did they try to convert everybody? No, they didn't. How do we know? Let's look at a few other scriptures. A few of those scriptural statements that we're, we're referring to that verify the prophecies that point to everyone having a future opportunity. First, let's go to another example of Jesus avoiding bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Now remember, even when he was talking to a Jewish audience, he was talking in parables. But he did not allow the gospel to go beyond the confines of a Jewish audience for the, for the most part. Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather... Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus, now he's sending out his disciples. He could send them anywhere he wants to. And he's specifically saying, only go to Israel. Don't even go to the Samaritans who have a sense of Jewishness. Certainly don't go to the Gentiles who are as far away from Jewishness as possible. Only go to the lost sheep of Israel. He's narrowing their search for those who would follow the gospel. Why would Jesus do that? Because that's what the time dictated he was supposed to do according to God's will. Now an example of Jesus showing an actual ray of hope for those who never heard the gospel. And Jonathan, I don't know what the numbers are, but there, I don't know, there are billions who never even heard a breath of the word of the gospel, aren't there? There are. You're right, Rick. And they not only have lived from the time of Christ to now, but they are, there's many, many, many who lived before. Well, Matthew 11, verses 20 through 25, Jesus gives a ray of hope for those who had never heard the gospel. And this, to me, is fascinating and helps us understand that the, God, the, the plan of God is big and it's inclusive, but it takes its time according to God's will and God's way. Matthew 11, let's start with 20 and 21. 
Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For in the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, Tyre and Sidon were two cities that existed at the time of Jesus, but also existed long before the time of Jesus, back to the time of the prophets. And in the time of the prophets, they were spoken of as dark and evil places. And they kept that reputation up until the time of Jesus. So these are generations and generations and generations of people that lived in utter darkness. And what is Jesus saying about those, those, those people if they had seen the miracles, uh, his miracles performed in their city? That the cities would have been converted because of the, the great miracles that God did through Jesus. So he's saying they would have been receptive. So you got to say, well, well, then why didn't you go there? <laughs> because if they would have been receptive and Jesus knew they would have been receptive, it, it makes sense to us to say, why didn't you go there? And the answer is because now is not the time. Next, Jesus shows how all will have opportunity, though it will be harder for some than for others. And, and, and Jonathan, before you read this next verse, I want to stress the idea that all will have opportunity, not just a few. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Okay, there's more tolerable because they didn't have the Enlightenment, and had they had the Enlightenment, they would have gone further. So if now was the time for world conversion, and those cities were still in existence, Tyre and Sidon, and they were, and Jesus knew that they would, would and could repent, then why did he not go to them? It was because of God's timing. Verses 23 and 24 of Matthew 11. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for in the miracles that occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So Sodom will be there in the day of judgment, and it will be more tolerable because if they had seen what Capernaum had seen, they would have responded. Jonathan, that tells us God is gracious, and he's going to give them... Go ahead, I'm sorry. That's right. And remember how evil Sodom was, that city. Right, right. And how... How terrible, you know, God's judgment came down with fire and brimstone to destroy it. Right. But it's proving that each and every one that lived at that time will be resurrected in the day of judgment. Right, and they will have a better time of it. So the day yes, of judgment, right? So the day of judgment isn't about hellfire. That's another story for another time. Jesus again showing hope for both cities here. Not he's not showing a lack of accountability. He doesn't say anything about they're they're off the hook. He's just showing that they have hope. Jesus verifies, or I'm sorry, John verifies Jesus' role as including all men in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So here you have John explaining that Jesus is the propitiation. Now, what's the, what does that mean? Well, Rick, it means atoning sacrifice. So it's the sacrifice that brings things back to evenness. 
So yes. not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. That's what Jesus came for. And so we need to see that as part of the present so we can now go and move toward the future. God's method was not to keep the Bible itself hidden from all, but uh, uh, from all but those who would be, be given understanding. Rather, God's method was to hide the truth of the Bible in plain sight. Why? Why did he hide it in plain sight? Because God's timing said, not yet. So writing the book of the books of the Bible by the hand of man rather than angels is a perfect way to do that. Let's wrap this up. It is. And the next question should be obvious. If the world is not being converted in our time, then what is God's plan accomplishing right now? If we asked Rick, Jonathan, and the CQ Contribution team to answer our topical questions in five minutes or less, rather than in several chapters over 90 minutes, they'd probably get a little stressed out. Plus, they love painting that bigger picture by looking at several real-world media perspectives, historical facts, and scripture. That's why some answers may come quickly. But we love taking a look at the bigger questions that aren't so easy. So the bigger question, you know, you asked the question, you know, what's God's plan accomplishing right now? And that is a bigger question. This question really does get to the core of the matter. We've been emphatic in our approach that God works steadily and progressively over time. We've also been emphatic that Jesus did not set out to immediately convert the world, but did pay the price to save the world. So how do all these pieces add up? And really, that's what we have to do, Jonathan. We're down to our final segment. We've got to try to add these pieces up and wrap up part one of our two-part series, Why Didn't God Make the Bible Easy to Understand? Um, First, though, let's go to a quote. And I love this quote, Jonathan, because it's very practical. J. Michael Straczynski, what did he say? Understanding is like a three-edged sword. Your side, my side, and the truth. And doesn't that fit how we can easily confuse a matter? so easily, so readily by being, um, by putting ourselves in a position where, where it's just, it's just not going to work, work anymore. So why the Bible, well, let's go back, let's go back to the last two reasons from the 10 reasons the Bible is not well, a well-written book by friendlyatheist.com. Uh, reason number nine coming up. It's too repetitive. The Bible tells the same story multiple times And it doesn't even bother to keep all those versions consistent with each other. A good writer tells the story once properly and then moves on. Or if you're like William Faulkner writing Absalom, Absalom, maybe you tell the same story from different perspectives and add more to each layer of the story. The Bible doesn't do that. Just look at the genealogy sections as an example. I mean, they are a chore to read. Surely you can explain lineage in a more interesting way than this person gave birth to that person, and that person gave birth to somebody else, and on and on for pages on end. So he says it's too repetitive. It doesn't add... Well, Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, Rick, uh, I love the, the fact that um, the Gospels, uh, the different personalities of, of those dear ones bring a variety of perspectives to touch each of us in different ways, and we all think differently. I think it's brilliant. I mean, God's amazing to make sure he touches every personality type that can really get it. (laughs) Right. 
Right. And, and, and so, and, and there are many stories. It, there is a lot of repetitiveness, but, but he misses the point that these, this repetitiveness isn't the same words over and over again. It's the same words in adding this detail and that detail from this perspective or that perspective. So he's yeah. saying a well-written book would do that. Well, look, that's what it does. You just don't understand it. You're just not looking deeply enough to appreciate that specific point of view. Matthew was written from a script, an Old Testament prophetic scriptural perspective. Mark was written for those who who didn't. It, it was it's the shortest gospel. It was written uh, to show you the deeds, the works of Jesus. Uh, Luke was written to show you the chronology of how Jesus' life went, and John was written to show you the heart of Jesus. So, four different perspectives on one life. And when you put them together, it is absolutely breathtaking. Let's go to his 10th reason why he says the Bible is not a well-written book. Goes too far with the stories. If you wanted to convince people to take the Bible seriously, the stories would be a little more plausible. And yet there are so many miracles that deny any semblance of plausibility. Between talking snakes and virgin births and great floods and people almost living to the age of a thousand, it's a wonder anyone could take this book seriously. God should have backed off. Instead, he jumped the shark in the first chapter. The Bible isn't a good book. Well, I don't know what to say, Jonathan. You know, from the from the small little perspective of humanity here at this end of the age, when everything comes to us with instantaneous uh, self-satisfaction, we look at this book that was written over such a long period of time that shows us ancient thinking, ancient prophecy, ancient history, and puts it all together to tell us a story of God's plan. It is a breathtaking book that uh, doesn't go too far with the stories. It only begins to tell the stories, and I think we need to see it. Go ahead. And Rick, the miracles that are performed um, in the Old Testament, they're pictures of the future and blessing of, of humankind from, from their weaknesses, from Adam's fall. I mean, wow, God has power to do that? And, and again, those are the things that nobody will ever see when they write it off like that. And it's unfortunate because, again, it's not the time to see, but boy— if you just begin to look with your whole heart, and Julius brought that out in his comments earlier in the, in the podcast, and, and you put yourself in a position to be able to study using proper principles, you unfold an incredible, incredible story. So, Jonathan, our final push at those three questions, or those three statements, rather. So, why the Bible is confusing? One more reason it's confusing. Go ahead. This book applies different sets of rules to different time periods. How am I supposed to know what applies when, when it doesn't tell me? Okay. <laughs> and look, that's a legitimate question. It doesn't make sense. It says this there, and it doesn't say it there, and how come, and why is it different? So what is it that we feel like we want from the Bible instead of that feeling of confusion? God, just send me a direct message that tells me what to do. Okay. That's what we want. But now is not the time for such a direct message. Why did God arrange it for it to be this way? God's eternal plan not only sets the human pathway to life, his plan requires some to be active as his people in carrying it out. He calls and develops these people 
in his own time. So the Bible is not about giving everybody everything right here and right now, because it's an eternal plan. And if you're going to have something that's going to work for eternity, it just doesn't it just doesn't develop because you think about it. It develops because you make it happen and you put all of the minute details together over a very long period of time. That's exactly what's happening here with Scripture. So, Jonathan, as we begin to angle toward winding down this first of the two-part series on why didn't God make the Bible easy to understand, we're going to focus now on what is happening in this age. We, we have been saying over and over and over and over again, well, now's not the time to convert the world. Now's not the time to convert the world. And given all kinds of different reasons why now's not the time to convert the world. Well, what is now the time for then? Well, here we go. The true followers of Jesus see things differently than others who may name the name of Christ. So what we're saying right at the beginning here is the true followers of Jesus are a special called out group and everybody, just because you claim to be a Christian, you doesn't necessarily mean you're automatically a part of that special group. Matthew thirteen forty four. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay. It's a simple two-line parable. And he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like this treasure that a man finds, and it's so incredible to him, he gives up everything else that he has in life so he can buy that field, so he can have that treasure. So the true followers of Jesus don't merely hear and appreciate the call. They sell all for the sake of the call of the gospel because it's such a treasure. They dedicate their lives to the call. And those are words that cannot be taken lightly. To dedicate your life to the call means that everything else is now secondary behind that reason for living. Everything else. And that's a huge, huge step of dedication. You know, the rejection of Jesus by the masses and all that he truly stood for draws his true followers to him. A lot of times you look at the rejection of Jesus by the masses and you, you, you look at it and, and you're embarrassed. It's like, well, I wouldn't want to be associated with that. Look at it. Talk about humiliation. Forget it. I don't want anything to do with that. But the true followers of Jesus are drawn to him because he stood so firmly for something so much higher in the face of so much difficulty. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. I'm going to break this up as we, as we begin to wind down. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is one of the big, big, big hints of what now is supposed to be for. We keep saying, now is not the time for the world to be converted. Well, what is it the time for? It's time for the true followers of Christ to follow Christ. And in this verse, it's saying, just like he was rejected by men, and, he, and, 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 and his stand was choice and precious in the sight of God, it says in First Peter chapter 2, in verse 5 that you just read, you also, 
as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. You are being formed to be part of something that's bigger than you yourself as a holy priesthood. A priesthood, Jonathan, has several members. It's not just me. You're part of something bigger. Um, to, and, and, and the reason for that priesthood is to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. So you're being called and developed now for very specific reasons. That's the first part of this, what's happening now if the world's not being converted. So now, as we go further in 1 Peter chapter 2, again, prophecy shows us the importance of Jesus' role and the effect it has on his called out ones. So it talked about his being rejected as being an important part, and the scripture continues, 1 Peter chapter 2, let's go to verses 6 and 7. For this is contained in scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. Who's it for? Us. Right. So the world doesn't see it. It doesn't recognize it. When you talk about a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, you know, a cornerstone is the, is the foundation, essentially, of a building. It is, it is where you start the building. Jesus is the beginning of the building of reconciliation for the world of mankind. Without him, we have nothing to be built into. That's how important his role is. And it said, this is for you who believe. You need this because that cornerstone shows you how the building is supposed to look. You have to formulate yourselves according to the model that's put before us here. So prophecy also shows us the effect that Jesus would have on unbelievers. And again, it's God's timing. So it talked about this precious value is for those of you who believe. We stopped in the middle of verse 7, so let's continue with verse, the rest of verse 7 and verse 8 of 1 Peter 2. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So, you know, you think about folks like our friendly atheist who gave us all of those reasons. And one of the things he said was, well, you know, Jesus is supposed to be perfect and blah, 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 and on and on and on. And, and, you know, and, and he stumbles over the perfection of Jesus. He stumbles over why Jesus came. He stumbles over those things because he's not understanding. And, you know, you can't, you, can't you can't hold people accountable when they don't have the ability to understand because perhaps their eyes have been bl blinded. It's okay because now is not the time for them. So the prophecy, what, what's being spoken of in 1 Peter is telling us, you, you get it. And you're being built into this incredible building for a very specific purpose. And it already mentioned being part of a priesthood. Those who are not part of it, it's a stone of stumbling. It's not a, it's not a stone that shows them what to do and how to do it. It's a stone that they trip over and that they don't want in their way. And when you look at the world today, they don't want the precepts and example of Jesus Christ. That's for sure. So Peter builds on prophecy now. Okay, so we've got those prophecies. Those were Old Testament prophecies he was quoting. He builds on prophecy and explains the role that Jesus' followers will, play, will, will end up playing in relation to all of humanity. Again, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses. now we're on to verses 9 and 10. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right. So now it's listing out. What's happening now if the world's not being converted? Well, well, Jonathan, what's happening is this chosen race is being called to Jesus. This royal priesthood, this holy nation, this people for God's own possession. People who didn't have mercy in, in their past, in their lineage, now do have mercy. They have the mercy of God through Christ, and they're called for a special purpose. I mean, that's exciting, isn't it? It's, it's awesome, but it, it's not a building, it's not a denomination, it's not what you look out and, and, and see what Christianity says it is supposed to be. Right, right. It's the people, it's the individuals who come together and follow as, in, in Jesus' footsteps as his true disciples in lives of self sacrifice. So now what happens? Okay, that you're, this is what today is for. You're being called to be formed into this discipleship. Why? Let's go to verses 11 and 12. We're almost out of time. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may also, of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So what this is saying is, look, you are aliens and strangers in this world. You don't belong because you, 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 you march to the beat of a different drummer. You are walking away from fleshly lust. The world is walking towards them. Have your behavior be godly and, and excellent so that you'll be slandered. <laughs> you think, well, wait, who wants that? Because those who look at you with disdain and look down upon you will be able to glorify God in the day of visitation. And that is the day of judgment. That says that in their chance, they'll be able to look back and say, I knew that person. And wow, was I ever wrong about what I thought about them. So now as we wrap this up, Jonathan, it's simple. We still haven't dealt with how this massive change for the world will take place. That, my friends, is for part two. This is a complex subject, but folks, if you can begin to follow the reasoning, it is thoroughly uh, exciting and and it can be understandable to realize God does have a plan and it unfolds step by step by step. Let us follow the steps and glorify God in the process. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we'll be back again next week with another subject. But until then, God made the Bible hard to understand on purpose for your good. Think about it. And folks, we love hearing from you. Remember to let us know what you thought about today's topic. Go to ChristianQuestions.com, leave your comments, download our app, and search for our app in your app store. We'll be back again next week.